Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter today as we move forward. Of course, you know, there's, what, 22 chapters or so in the book of Revelation. So we are almost there to the end, or at least we're halfway. We're getting there. And in this section, we are now at the opening, or I should say the blowing of the trumpets and the trumpet judgments. So we just want to finish this chapter out. What we saw was in chapter 8, when the seventh uh, seal was opened, then the angels that were poised with these trumpets, or perhaps shofarot, shofars, ram's horns, begin to blow them. And with each blowing of the shofar, or the blowing of the trumpet, a different judgment is poured out upon the earth. When the first angel blew his trumpet, back in chapter 8, verse 7, we saw that there was a a destruction and judgment on the earth. So the earth was burned, a third of the trees, a third of the grass. And when the second angel blew his shofar, or his trumpet, Then we saw that a third of the salt water bodies of water were uh, destroyed. And then we saw in verse 10 of chapter 8, when the third angel blew his trumpet, a fallen angel, an evil spirit, a demon, falls to the earth. His name is Wormwood, and he causes one-third of the fresh water bodies of water to be made bitter, undrinkable. And then when the fourth angel blew his trumpet, Then there was uh, an effect upon the sun, moon, and the stars, so that one-third of the light produced by them was blotted out. Then at the end of Revelation chapter 8, we see this vulture, this eagle flying in the heavens, undoubtedly a reference to an angel, perhaps a fallen angel. There's a difference of opinion on that. But the angel says, woe, woe, woe. For the final three trumpet uh, judgments are woe judgments. They're of greater intensity and calamity upon the earth. When we get to chapter 9, the fifth angel blows his trumpet. And then we see an angel fall from heaven to the earth. And this angel was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, the abyss. We talked about this last week. When he opened the abyss... Out from the abyss came myriad of fallen angels, demons. Some demons had been already kept locked up in the abyss. 
You remember Yeshua when he healed the man who was possessed of a legion of demons in Gadara? They begged Messiah not to uh, send them into the abyss because this was a place where the worst of the worst demons, evidently, they had committed some sin. We can't get into it now, but the scripture is clear. They've, they've committed a sin that was unendurable of any kind, and therefore the Lord already throws them and locks them into the abyss. Now, at the end of time, just before Messiah comes and during this period of tribulation, this angel, during the blowing of the fifth trumpet, is given a key to open the abyss to let out these demons in order to torment man for five months. We read in verse 7, in verses 1 through 6, we're told what, what their origin is and what their mission is. Their origin is they come up from the abyss. Their mission is to torment humanity for five months. When we turn to verses 7 through 11, we're given their description. And their description is meant to uh, provide us with the horrific nature of these demonic beings. In verse 7, in appearance, the locusts, they're described as locusts, but as we saw last week, the use of the term locust comes right out of the book of Joel, and Joel uses this term to depict a horde of soldiers, an army that would bring destruction and devastation uh, on the land. I had mentioned last week that in the Middle East, these locusts that can come up in the Middle East and create one of these plagues could be as deep as 100 feet. And so if you think about baseball, from home plate to first base is 90 feet. So you got to go 10 feet out into the outfield. But they could be as deep as 100 feet and as lengthy as four miles. So four miles of these locusts would just devastate a given area. Joel depicts an enemy force against the people of Israel as such a force of locusts. Now in the book of Revelation, the same imagery is used. That you've got this horde of locusts coming out of the abyss, this horde of demons. And these locust-like beings that he sees them as, he says they were like horses prepared for battle. So they were probably huge right? Horses are big animals. I mean, we're not talking about those little miniature horses, you know. We're talking about these steeds that are used in the armies, especially in the ancient world, and those that would be pulling chariots. So these horses are huge, and they're ferocious. Ferocious might not be the right kind of word, but it says that they're prepared for battle. It's like they are ready to go. It makes sense because these fallen angels, these demons have been locked up in the abyss. They've been wanting to terrorize the world for centuries, maybe thousands of years. And so now they're given the opportunity to be released. And as they're released, they are ready to go in a battle. They're ready to bring the destructive force that they're given permission to bring upon the world. And upon humanity. They're limited. God is sovereign. He just doesn't give them carte blanche. He tells them only for five months. And they can't kill humanity. They can only bring torment upon them. But notice they were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like 
So they're similar, not exactly such, but what looked like crowns of gold. That's because in the angelic world, there's a hierarchy of beings. So in the the angelic world, that is the righteous angels, those angels that remain faithful to God, you've got seraphim that are around the throne of God. We see them in the book of Revelation, the four angels right around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. Those are the seraphim. We read of the uh, Michael, the archangel. There may be other archangels. We're not sure. We read of these angels that are prepared to blow these trumpets. We're told that these are angels who stand in the presence of God, which seems to be a unique phrase to define this particular class of angels. You remember when Gabriel appeared to Mary and identified himself, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. It doesn't just mean that they are angels who are sent from God, but they have a particular standing, a particular role, a particular relationship in the hierarchy of angelic beings. We read of not only seraphim, but cherubim. You remember the cherubim that was given the flaming sword in the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from returning to the garden after they were expelled from it. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that all believers have ministering spirits who watch over us and are instrumental in leading us to the place of salvation. So there's a hierarchy of angels in the angelic world. And there appears to be a hierarchy of beings among the demonic world because Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. Those are terms that denote a hierarchy among the fallen angels. And so here, when John, remember, this is in a vision. If you look further in Revelation chapter 9, in verse 17, it says, and this is how I saw the horses... In my vision. So this is a visionary experience. And so this is how he sees them. And and how he sees them symbolize aspects of his being. Seeing them with what looked like, he says, are crowns of gold, suggests that these were beings that had some kind of stature, of leadership perhaps, among the demonic realm. Later, we're told, if you look at verse 11, that among these golden crowned, as it were, demons, it says in verse 11, they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, destroyer or destruction. And so here, he, there is a king over them, and we're even given their name, his name. Further, we're told in Revelation 9, back to verse 7, their faces were like human faces. So you have these beings that are like a horde of locusts. They're powerful in stature, like a horse prepared for battle. They have some kind of rulership or authority because they have what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces are like human faces, which suggests they are not animalistic. They are intelligent beings. 
They're wise beings. Maybe wise is not quite the right word. They're knowledgeable beings. And they scrutinize, they reason, they strategize. And therefore, they can deceive. And as such, can take advantage and devour. So the idea that they have human faces, you know, these are pictorial images that suggest aspects of their character. And what's being denoted by their human appearance is that they're not just animalistic and acting on instinct, but they act through reasoning and determination, planning and deception. Further, we're told, their hair was like woman's hair. So they had long hair, almost like the mane on a horse. It suggests to me, and there's no, you know, it could be wrong here, not really sure. This is my idea. I think it suggests they're moving swiftly as long hair would like blow in the breeze. But I also think that it suggests a sense of vitality. We oftentimes think of long hair with femininity. I don't think that's correct. Remember, Samson had long hair and was a man of great power. And vitality. Think of a man like Absalom, who had long hair, who was a warrior and a killer. And so I think the idea of the long hair is how he sees them, but it may suggest swiftness and speed as they're moving, because as they're moving like horses and locusts, their hair is like streaming in the wind. They're moving quickly. They don't have a lot of time. There's only five months. They've been locked up for who knows how many thousands of years. And so they're taking advantage of their freedom as they have it. And they are powerful. And they have vitality in order to strike and to cause harm. Further, we are told that their teeth were like lion's teeth. So they are seeking to devour. By the way, if you look at the book of Joel, you'll see that the army, the horde of soldiers that come against God's people are depicted like locusts and that their teeth are depicted as lion's teeth. The imagery is that of a devouring army to consume, to maim, and to harm, and to hurt. And then it says they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. In other words, nothing can stop them. Nothing can defeat them. For those five months, they're going to be able to continue to harm mankind. And so the breastplates of iron, it's like protecting them. And nothing can uh, keep them from their accomplishment and what they are permitted to do. And they moved with such haste. It says the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing in a battle. And then in verse 10, they have tails, these horse-like beings. And their tails have stings like scorpions. And in their tails, they have the power to hurt people for these five months. And so this first series of the woe judgments is an unleashing of demonic beings to bring about hurt and harm on the world for the space of five months. And then we read in verse 12, the first woe has passed, but behold, two woes are still to come. That seemed like that would be enough, doesn't it? But no, there's two more to come. The next one he tells us is, Then when the sixth angel blew his trumpet, he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These must be demons too because they're bound. So angels are free, but not demons. 
These angels have been bound at the river Euphrates for how long? We don't know. But notice when this angel is told to blow the trumpet, this is the only instance we have this. This angel not only is told to blow the trumpet, but to get engaged in bringing about the result of the judgment. Look what it says again very carefully. He is told to release the four angels. Not only is he to blow the trumpet, but then he's to go and to release these four angels. And they're stationed at the river Euphrates. And I think this is critical because in the end times, as we'll see later, the false Messiah, the Antichrist, the center of his kingdom, that will be the final Gentile kingdom that will be vanquished by Messiah when he comes. In my opinion, that the false Messiah will have as his center of, uh, of his empire, his capital, will be in Babylon. And of course, Babylon is on the river Euphrates. Now, this makes sense. What's going to happen is he's going to, these angels are going to release these demons that are bound here in the Euphrates. It seems that a lot of demonic activity will be involved in bringing about the end-time ruler. And many of them will be stationed here in the east. So they're at the river Euphrates. And keep this in mind. When we think of the borders of the land of Israel... The northern border will be the river Euphrates going on up into modern-day Syria where the Euphrates bends and comes down from uh, Iraq today, Babylon, the ancient world. It flows north and it sort of bends west. And it's up here that the Euphrates comes into the region of Syria. And so it's its northern border. Israel is down here. And so the Euphrates is the northern border of Israel. The eastern border is the Jordan River. The western border is the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. The southern border is the Wadi El Arish, a wadi that's right near the Sinai Peninsula. And the northern border is the Euphrates. Perhaps part of this is these uh, angels that have, or these uh, demons that come out of the Euphrates will come to harm the whole earth, but perhaps a focus of attention on the land of Israel since they're right on the border. Hard to say for sure. But look what he goes on to say. He says, release them. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the first group that we saw, they only could torment for five months. But now this group can actually kill one third. When you remember that when the seals were opened back in Revelation, what was it, chapter 5? That when one of the seals is opened, it says one quarter of humanity dies. Now, added to that one quarter is another third in Revelation chapter 9. And so it says the number of mounted troops, those that these four demons are leading, the number of them, in my translation, is twice 10,000 times 10,000. Some translations will say 200 million. It's a lot of demonic forces. I know in the past, Hal Lindsey, who I greatly respect and admire and appreciate his work, back then they talked about the Chinese army and, the, and images like that. I don't think that's exa- at all what's going on here in the book of Revelation. He's talking about angels that have been bound and now are loosed and are leading a horde of demonic forces in order to bring destruction. Now, will these demonic forces inspire armies to bring about death? And so on, of course. But underneath and underlying it all are these fallen angels. Now, notice what he says. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. That's why we know it's a vision he has. 
Those who rode them, they wore breastplates. Now, this is really interesting. The color of them, he says, is the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. Now, if you look at the plagues that they strike the earth with, take a look at this, because it says, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And it says that there was like fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. It, paralyzed, it parallels the colors of the breastplate. The color of fire, and he says, and out of their mouths comes fire. And then sapphire, it's like a bluish color, which is a color of smoke. And then sulfur, which is this color, yellowish color. And now if you go down to verse 18, and by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire, smoke, sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we have... Uh, with regard to later in the book of Revelation, you see that Satan was that old serpent. So when it says that the power was in for their tails are like serpents, that's how he saw them. But I think what he's trying to emphasize is these are demonic forces. The two of the three woes have to do with the unleashing of spiritual beings to bring harm to humanity. Now, let me just say this as as we close. When you come to the end, he says, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What's really wonderful about this section or this passage is God's concern is that these tribulations, these trials, would bring about a repentance on the part of humanity. God is concerned for his creation. He's just not levying punishments to harm people, to punish them, and to, and to just give them a hard time. The Lord is seeking to bring them to a place of repentance. So the final thoughts I'd like to lead you with are, is this. Number one... Demonic forces are real, right? That's what, if, if nothing, get nothing else out of this passage, certainly Revelation 9 tells us demons are real beings. I know in our world, you know, that's, they are looked upon as being superstitious. But from a biblical perspective, and in very much uh, in our own experience, experiences, we know that there are forces that are greater than those which we can see. And if you would, turn with me in the Brit HaDashah, in the New Covenant Scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter. You know, evil forces, evil beings are spoken of throughout the Scripture. Of course, before the Lord, they must flee. The Lord is sovereign. Another thing that comes out of this passage that's so great is that God is in control of it all, right? They can't do anything that God does not instruct them to do. If they can only torment, that's all they can do. If they can only do it for five months, that's all they can do. If they're locked up, they stay locked up unless they are freed. So whatever they do, they do because God enables them to do it. They are not able to withstand the authority, the might, the will of the Lord. So we always have to remember that he is stands above all. And while... Um, there is tribulation in this world. Be of good cheer, Messiah says, for I've overcome the world. He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. 
But they are real beings. Now, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us some instruction as to how we can deal with demonic forces. And it comes out of the book of Revelation and it comes out of this passage. If you look at 1 Peter chapter uh, chapter 5, as he brings this book or letter to a close, in verse 6 he says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now listen, this is exactly what we see here in Revelation chapter 9. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, they did not repent. What does it mean to repent? You need to humble yourself before God. To repent means to agree with God. That's what repentance means. It means to agree with God that such and such is sin. I agree with you. To have sorrow for sin that leads to repentance. Sorrow for sin is a sense that this is just wrong. And there's a sense of guilt. And there's a sense of shame. And there's sorrow over having been engaged in such a thing. That is to lead us to a place where we agree with God that this is not a good thing we were involved in and it was rebellious against him. And such repentance is meant to lead us to conversion. Now, in the Jewish world, the word convert or conversion is a bad word because it's oftentimes been understood to mean to cease to be who you are. And so among the Jewish people, we've always thought, myself included, that to convert meant to cease to be a Jew. But to convert in the biblical sense means to turn away from one's sin. Has nothing to do with one's identity and who one is. We continue to be Jews and non-Jews. We just happen to be converted Jews that recognize that our sin is a bad thing and we're turning from it. We happen to be converted Gentiles that realize that our sin is a bad thing and we're turning from it. We agree with God in repentance. We turn from it in conversion. So when the Lord brings these judgments on the world in Revelation chapter 9 as described therein, and there's more to come. There's still one more woe. That's only two woes. But there's still a woe judgment. God is still not finished with the world in attempting to lead it to a place of repentance and conversion. And so this is a heart-rending Statement: The rest of mankind who are not killed, who survived, you would think, let me, uh, let me bow before the Lord and confess my sin. But no, they did not repent of their wicked ways. Now, back to 1 Peter. The, Peter says the same thing. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why? Because we can cast all our anxieties on him. And why can we cast all our anxieties on him? Because... He cares for us. He's concerned for us. He desires our welfare. That's why he sent Messiah into the world, that we would have salvation through him. He cares for us. But in order to embrace it, we have to repent. In order to repent, we have to have sorrow for our sin. In order to have sorrow, we have to humble ourselves before him. And when we humble ourselves before him, he lifts us up. And Peter is very much concerned that his readers do this. Because look what he goes on to say. He says, therefore, do be mindful to humble yourself before God, to repent of one's sin, to, to change from it. Because he says, your adversary, the evil one, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
So the evil one is afoot. And he seeks to devour us. But the way to withstand his devouring attempts is by remaining humble before the Lord. Remaining repentive before the Lord. Seeking to walk in the ways of our Lord. We are to resist him, not in our own power, verse 9, but in the faith. Now, with that in mind, turn to the book of Ephesians. So the evil one and his cohorts are real. And they seek to devour. In the book of Revelation, they're given great opportunity and empowerment to do that. But they have significant enough power even now to do harm if they are so permitted. But they can be resisted. And they're resisted by humbling ourselves before God. Now, Paul gives us some other indicators and some other guidelines. He tells us finally, verse 10 of chapter 6, be strong in the Lord. Again, it has everything to do with your relationship to God. Stand in humility, humble before him. Here he says, stand in the strength of the Lord and in his might. That requires standing before him humbly. He tells us, put on the whole armor of God, not our own strength, but the strength of God. The armor that is from him, the armor that he is. And the reason for this is because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But ultimately behind much of what we go through is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, the way to resist them is to stand humbly before God, stand in the power of the might of God, and then in verse 13, to put on the whole armor of God, not just pieces, but the whole armor. And he tells us what's involved in this armor. He tells us, first of all, we should have the belt of truth, people of integrity, We should have a breastplate of righteousness guarding our hearts that we would be concerned to live righteously. That we would have our sandals, our shoes with the readiness given to the gospel of peace that we're ready to proclaim the good news of Messiah wherever he brings us. We're to have with us this shield of faith, a deep trust and reliance upon the Lord so that we can extinguish The darts, the flaming darts of the evil one that seeks to harm us and to hurt us in a variety of ways. He tells us to put on the helmet of salvation that our minds might be secured and protected as we think upon the things of God. That we have in our hand the sword of the spirit. That's the word of God. We need to know the word. Remember when Yeshua fought Satan in the temptation account. Three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quotes the word of God. The way to withstand the evil one with the sword of the spirit is the knowledge of the word of God and the implementation of its truth. And then he says four times in the Greek, by the way, four times in maybe three or four verses, verses 18, he says, pray. Look what he says in verse 18. Praying at all times with all prayer, With all supplications, that's a kind of prayer. He tells us, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication another kind of prayer for all the saints. 
In the, in the Greek it says, and pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opportunity and in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So prayer. Now, let me just close with this thought on prayer. Back to Revelation chapter 9. You know, it's really interesting. It says that when the Lord begins to move in verse 13 of chapter 9, it says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Isn't that interesting? You know, he heard the voice not from the throne of God. He hears it from the golden altar that's before the throne of God. So the question is, what is this altar before the throne of God? Well, look at chapter 8 and look at verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the voice of command comes from the altar of incense, which is a golden altar of incense, which is before the throne of God. So the voice is coming from not the throne of God, but from the altar of incense. And remember, in Revelation chapter 6, that when the Lord opens, or the Lamb opens the fifth seal, he hears the voices of those who were killed during the tribulation, crying out to God in prayer, how long will it be until we are vindicated? And their prayer comes from the altar. It says that they're underneath the altar, which is before the throne of God. So you have the prayers of the people coming from the throne, uh, from the altar of incense, mingled with the will and purpose of God. And so the voice comes from the altar of incense. I think what's being illustrated is that the prayers of people in some mysterious way interconnects with the will and purpose of God to bring about God's plan and program. And so when the command goes, to release these angels at the Euphrates, it comes from in the context of the prayers of the people because these final judgments is an answer to their prayer to vindicate them for the suffering they've suffered. And so how do we deal with evil spirits and such? Number one, we realize they're real. Number two, we humble ourselves before God and we put on the whole armor of God. And number three, we commit ourselves to prayer because our prayers somehow interconnect with the will and ways of God to bring about his purpose on the earth. I know sometimes we think that our prayers just hit the ceiling and bounce back. I know sometimes we wonder, is God really hearing me because I've prayed about this for so long? Well, we don't know what God's plan and purpose is in the unfolding of his will, particularly. These in heaven didn't know because they're saying, how long is it going to be? He doesn't tell them. He just tells them to wait. And that's oftentimes what he tells us. But as we see it unfold, evidently their prayers had a way of unleashing some of the events that would be an answer to their prayer to vindicate them. And no doubt our prayers have a way of interconnecting with what God's will and purpose is in our world and in our lives to bring it about as well. 
So we don't stand in fear of these fallen beings. We don't stand with an undue focus of attention, a preoccupation, an obsession with them. We don't do that. We want to be obsessed and preoccupied with God because it's before him we are to humble ourselves. It is of him that we are to put on and it is to him that we are to pray. And if we do that, then we'll see the Lord unfold all kinds of things in our lives and in our world. So let's pray. And while we're praying, the ushers can be prepared and the musicians can come on up. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. These are very turbulent revelations that we have read about. These are very gloomy events. They are horrific in nature and they are horrific in imagery. But Lord, they underscore for us how real fallen beings are, how ferocious and terrifying they can be. But they are limited in what they can do and they are limited by your power and by your presence. Help us, Lord, to be responsive to your word and being committed to recognizing our enemy, but not being preoccupied with them, but rather with the weaponry you have given us to defend ourselves. Lord, may you help us in remaining humble before you, repenting, converting, and thereby being transformed by your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to put on the whole armor of God, And thereby to be prepared to resist the evil one and to combat him if necessary. May we do that with your most holy word. And then, Lord, may we not neglect the privilege and the power of prayer. May we beseech you often. May we seek you always. And may we rely upon you for everything. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.